Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. All right, it doesn't come up very often. Let's give him a clap. Make you feel welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Lyra. Hi, everybody. How are we going? Good. Um, yeah. So tonight, we are going to be continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, where we take just a little snippet of Jesus' words, and we do a deep dive with it, and do some digging, and see what treasures we can find underneath. And tonight, I'm really excited to be bringing you the verses about the evil eye. It's a nice thing, it's like, ooh. Now, to be fully transparent, Jesus actually never uses the term evil eye. It's just a term we like to apply to these phrases because it sounds really good. At best, we get bad eye, but we translate to e- that to evil eye because it rolls off the tongue a little bit better. And so I'm just going to share this verse with you here now. So it goes, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore that light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness and that was a slide there it is (laughs) I said it right okay great so this is an interesting verse in fact it's probably a little bit obscure a little bit ambiguous at times as well and what makes it even more stranger is actually where it's located in the Sermon of the Mount you see it's actually slotted between two quite well-known verses about money And so if you go to the next slide, Dan, so beforehand, it is talking about, uh, Jesus is talking about storing our treasures up in heaven, opposed to storing them up on earth, that way they'll keep forever. And then directly afterwards, in 624, he's talking about you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve money and God, you must choose. And these verses actually flow really well into each other. They, They talk about money, the same thing, it's a great little message. And so we have to wonder, why... Did Jesus, or at least the writers, feel the need to insert this passage about the evil eye between these two verses? And what does this actually mean? So it's a little bit of a strange one, and that's what we're going to be going through tonight. So just to, I guess, clarify what the audience of the time was understanding this verse to mean, that's what I want to talk about first. How do we understand it in the context of the time? And then I'm going to be going through a little bit deeper about what Jesus, at least what I think Jesus, was actually meaning, what he was meaning when he was talking about these verses of the evil eye and seeing what we can get there. So just quickly, if anyone's wondering that very, if you go back to the previous um, uh, passage, there we go, that last one, just want to clarify that how great is that darkness. Jesus isn't talking about some emo culture or anything like that. That word great doesn't mean good or awesome. It's talking about how large, how vast, how huge is that darkness, just in case anyone was wondering about that. But what I want to spend a little bit more time on is that very first line, the eye, sorry, the lamp of the body is the eye and what that actually means. You see, when we think about the eye, we don't think about it so much as a lamp, at least with our understanding of science today. If anything, we think about the eye maybe more like a window. 
It's something that is open, lets the light in. And as we know, the light goes in our eye, bounces off the back of our retina, sends optical images to our brain, and that's how we see. We don't think about so much as a lamp, but that is how they saw the eye. That was the science behind the eye back in the time of Jesus. And you see, they understood the eyes to emit its own invisible light. And what we looked at, our eyes would actually shine upon. That is how we would actually see different things. So if you go, yeah, so that picture there on the left is, I guess, an idea of what they thought the eye, uh, how the eye functioned. And this can actually be found in the writings of very big names, some um, like Plato, Socrates. They talk about the lights that come out of our eyes that help us to see. This is also used very much in Scripture as well. It talks about the lights in our eyes, uh, when someone is feisty, it's about the fire in their eyes. When someone in some of the laments in uh, Psalms is talking about the light in my eyes is going. And so this whole imagery of light and eyes is a very close thing as well. The one on the right-hand side, that's actually done by the same artist that has done these images around um, the church. And this is perhaps maybe more how we understand the eyes to work today. But rather than me go through explain, I'll leave you just to ponder on that one yourself because I think that's what we should do with art. Okay, so while the eyes emit a light, as they understood it back then, this light is actually a reflection of what is in your heart. So if you have a good heart, if you have a wholesome heart, a pure heart, a God-centered heart, then the light that will come to your eyes would bless what you survey. So as an as a owner of land would survey his property, he would bless his property. But the opposite is true as well. You see, if you have an evil heart, you have an evil glare or an evil eye, and what you look upon with your evil eye would be cursed. And that was the understanding of that as well. But while a good heart emits a good light and a bad heart emits a bad light, what is worse is blindness. Because blindness is like the light of your body has now been extinguished. And that's it's really interesting. So if you understand that and then look at what how Jesus reacts um, to people with blindness and things like that. It actually gives a bit more in-depth understanding what Jesus is doing in his ministry. And so in John uh, uh, 9, sorry, uh, verses 1 to 2, it says this, As he went along, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? You see, blindness was seen as the punishment for some heinous crime. You must have done something so bad in your life that the light of your body has been taken out. And so what the disciples actually think, we're thinking, we have a witty question here. This man's been blind from birth, but how do you sin before you're born? So they're going to Jesus. Is sin generational? Is it passed on through the generations? Is it his parents that sin, which is why this man's blind from birth? And what does Jesus do? He doesn't really give him a solid answer, but he kneels down, spits in the dirt, makes some mud, rubs it on the blind man's eyes, and heals him. And so what Jesus is doing with that action, and it's one of those subtleties that we can miss, is basically he's saying, I am forgiving this man of his sins. And so there is a depth there as we understand um, the eyes and how it's perceived in those days. And so that's all well and good, but what does this actually have to do with us today? What, how is that important to us, this whole thing with the eyes and lights in our body? And so this is what I think Jesus is actually getting at here. You see, he is giving us a comparison, absolutely, between a life walking in lightness and a life walking in darkness. But really, it's the same world, isn't it? Whether we perceive the world as light or darkness, we are all living in the same world. And so what I think Jesus is getting at here is how we perceive 
the world around us. We can be looking at exactly the same thing, but seeing two very different things at the same time. So if you go to the next picture, um, if I just ask you, have a look at the taxis there. Have a quick look, and now if you just go back to the previous slide again, if I was to ask you now, how many taxis did you see? You would say eight, ten, some, yeah. And so, so that's, yeah, it's a pretty thing, easy thing to say. But if I was to say, okay, how many red cars did you see? Or how many, one red car, nice. How many bike, uh, bike lanes did you see? Or how many trees did you see? Or how many newspaper stands did you see? Those questions, for some of us, <laughs> are probably harder for us to answer. And that's because what we perceive isn't always a whole picture. In fact, it's re very rarely a whole picture. And so in any one moment, we get a lot of information coming our way and we've become very good, very, very good at deciding what we see and what we ignore because we don't deem it as that important. And if we're not conscious of what we are perceiving, we might be perceiving things in this darkness that Jesus is talking about. And so this is a really, something really important that we need to be aware of. And so we see either what we want to see, we see what we look for, or we see what we've been told to see. That is our perceptions. And so this is why some parents think their kids are little angels and they can do absolutely nothing wrong. And even if their kid hits another kid, that other kid must have deserved it because they must have done something really bad to their little treasure. Same thing with sports fanatics. It's like their team never does anything wrong, do they? It's always the ref must have some kind of agenda. And they're saying their ref is being paid off and they're pulling them up for all these fouls that didn't really happen and the other team's getting away with murder. It's the same reason why when we are in love, when we are walking with that person we love, we feel like we're floating down the street. It's when we're eating with that person, we could be eating a $2 kebab from the little caravan place in the petrol station and it would be the most amazing thing that you've ever eaten. It's why when we talk with that person, we feel like we're breaking out into song, just like one of those Disney movies. But you take the perspective of love out of that and eating is just refueling, walking is just transportation, talking just becomes merely communication. And so it's important to be aware of what we're looking for or what we're looking at. If we look for the bad in something, we will find it because that's what we're perceiving. And that's a very easy thing to do. And we can twist anything in that way. Look at, you know, we read through the Bible, the Pharisees. They wanted to see Jesus as a drunkard, as a sinner, as a false prophet. And that's exactly what they saw. The Son of God, the perfect man, God incarnate on earth, and they would and they were able to find fault with him without much trouble whatsoever. And so while I think we need to be aware of not trying to look for the bad in everything, I think trying to look for the good in everything isn't necessarily the answer either. Because let's face it, there are some horrible, horrible things that happen to us and to other people in this world, and there's not good. There's no good in those kind of things. And if we try to look for the silver lining in everything and try to justify anything, then we, we can be very ignorant to what's actually going on and the pains that other people are going through as well. So I don't think Jesus is asking us just to look for the good in everything. Rather, I think what we should be doing is looking for God in everything. Ah, you see what I did there? Dropped an O. Ooh, worked hours on that one. <laughs> Because when we look for God in everything, we are looking for how is God working here? How is God... 
because he's in every situation, isn't he? And so how, where is God in his situation? How are we reacting to that? You see, God is love. And through that love, he enables us to see, just like light enables us to see. But we can't actually see light, and we can't actually see God. And so God isn't the object that we're looking for out there in the world, but he's the means through how we see through love. And as Christians, we need to be constantly aware of our perceptions and looking through the love that God gives us. We see what is in our hearts. If we are, if we are, um, are calloused and angry and upset and dark is the darkness we see. If we are God-centric, if we know his voice, if we listen to him, if we look through God's love, we can see a very, very different world. But the question is, how do we actually do that? How do we look through God's love? That's, that's a tough thing, and there's probably a lot of different ways we can do this. But in my thinking about this, I think one of the main ways we can do this is look at the questions that we ask. We should question the questions that we ask of us and the world around us. Someone really wise, not me, but someone really wise, once said, if you only ask bad questions, you can only get bad answers. And I think we need to be better question askers. I think we need to be asking good questions and looking at the questions that we pose to ourselves and the world around us when we are trying to perceive the world through God's eyes. And so I just want to go through a few questions with you tonight just to help illustrate my point. And in any day, we probably have dozens and dozens of questions that we ask. This is just a few of them that came to my mind. Sometimes we look at suffering. We see suffering in the world. And we ask the classic question, how can a loving God let this happen? Or how is God just? This is a horrible thing. How can he let this happen? You see, the problem with asking this question is it inevitably leads us to one of two conclusions. Either one, God is all-powerful, but he just doesn't care. Or two, God is not all-powerful and can't stop these bad things from happening. And we all know deep down inside, neither of those are right. And so when we ask these questions, the problem with this is we are basically putting or projecting our own sense of justice onto God. We're saying, if I was God, I would have stopped this from happening. Or if I was God, I would do this. We are putting ourselves in God's shoes, assuming his power, and saying, this is how I would run the world. Do you see there's a problem with that? It's, this, is, this is where the devil started going downhill, wanting to jump in God's shoes, thinking he could do a better job. You see, our own, often our um, own image of God is an idolised image of ourself. We're thinking, this is, this is what the Oren God would look like. This is what Oren God would do. And that's not perfect God by any uh, stretch of the imagination. Um, what's that? There's that saying, God, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And the man's been trying to repay the favour ever since. <laughs> it's not a great angle to approach this kind of thing from. Perhaps a better question, and just perhaps, perhaps a better question to ask is, where is God in this pain? So we see suffering in the world or suffering is happening to us and we should ask where is God in this pain just Wednesday just gone was the 18 year anniversary of 9-11 and there was suffering throughout America many people were crying out in pain as their loved ones innocent people died and a lot of people were asking where is God in this isn't America a Christian nation how can God let something like this happen 
But a lot of people are also asking, you know, where is God in this pain? Where, where is God in this suffering? And I don't think we have a God that is there with you know, pulling the strings like a puppet master, controlling everything that's happening in the world. Everything good or bad that happens is it within his control and it is his will. I don't think we have a God like that. Rather, I think we have a God that sits with us in our pain, that holds us in our agony, that mourns with us, that cries with us, that hurts with us and fills our pain as well. And so perhaps that is where God was sitting in those horrific attacks. There was actually reports of days after those attacks. There was a different vibe in New York. New York was, and I guess still is, a place that's very much known for, you know, people aren't the kindest, they're not always the nicest to one another, it's a little bit rude, everyone's kind of just looking after themselves, but the days after that, people were reporting, um, you know, accounts of generosity and love outpouring to strangers and to each other that they don't usually feel in that city. And so maybe God was in that holding people, loving people, comforting people, rather than being the one pulling all those strings. Uh, Peter McHugh was the uh, keynote speaker at the um, Pioneer Conference back in July that Summers from this uh, church went to. And he explains this kind of thing like this. He said, God is in charge, but he's not in control. And when I first heard that, I thought, I was taken back a little bit. I think, God isn't in control? Because it kind of sounds like God has made this Frankenstein monster that's now broken free and running rampant and God can't stop it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God is in charge, but he's not in control because he gave the control of the world over to us. That is why bad things happen to good people. This is all part of the parcel of complete and utter free will. We have absolutely free will to do horrific things, and we have the free will to do really good things as well. We have the free will to deny God even exists if we want, because that's the will he's bestowed upon us. And so when... We ask bad questions. Again, we can only get bad answers. But if we ask better questions, we can have some revelation into workings and our relationship with God as well. Another question that we ask sometimes, and I'm sure we've all done this one, but how about this? Why is that person so annoying? What's wrong with them? We've all asked that one, haven't we? It might be that person at work, and you see they have a shift coming up with them, and he's like, ah. might just call in sick or it might be that weird relative that you have and you see them at every family gathering it's like I can't believe we're related we all have that person that kind of just rubs us the wrong way perhaps a better question there is to turn it back on itself and saying what is it in me that finds this person so infuriating or perhaps we could phrase it like this what is in this situation or what does this situation say about me or if you really want to confront yourself, what am I actually learning here? That's a tough one to ask yourself. You see, when we ask questions like this, when we turn around off ourself, back onto ourself, we're doing quite a few different things there. Because number one, again, this is about perspectives. This is about how we see the world. Because there's a good chance that person that drives you absolutely nuts, the entire world probably doesn't think they're annoying. Probably a lot of them does, but for, for the most part, I'd say not everyone sees them in the same light that you do. And you can't change them. Try as you might. You cannot change that other person. It is up to them to change themselves. And it's also up to you to change yourself as well. So maybe rather than trying to change them, we need to look at ourselves as well. Doing this, asking this question as well, also takes the judgment out of that situation. Because 
what we are doing is we're basically judging that person. We are deeming them unworthy for X, Y, Z. And I know from my own experience that nobody, absolutely nobody's helped by my own, through my judgment. But I know I can help many, many people through my kindness. And I think that is another way we can see the world through the eyes of God. Um, another question. And this, is, this one is a very, a very simple question, a very general question. It can be applied to a lot of things, but I think it's one that we ask quite a lot. And usually when something new is coming out, so maybe some new law has been uh, proposed or a new technology comes out, a kid gets some kind of new toy or something like that comes out, and we ask a very basic question. Is this thing good or is it bad? Is this healthy? Is this unhealthy? Is this helpful? Is this unhelpful? We, we try to cut everything right down the middle and see it as black and white, because that makes our life a lot easier. If everything was black and white, good and bad, then it would be really easy to go through life, make decisions, and not really feel too bad about it, because everything bad goes over there, everything good goes over there. But so little in this world is black and white. There is so much in the grey, and if we only see things as that black and white uh, polarisation, then we are missing out on a lot of the good stuff in the middle as well. And so perhaps rather than trying to ask, is this good or is this bad? Perhaps we should be asking, how is this thing being used? I think that's a better question to be asking itself. How is this being used? Because things themselves are not innately good or bad, are they? It's how they're used that usually decides that. So, for example, look at a knife. A knife in the hands of a serial killer can kill and harm a lot of people, but a knife in the hands of a skilled surgeon can actually save lives. It's not good or bad, it's how it's used. Another one, and this one, similar kind of vein, but this one's looking at us again. And we ask, am I a good dot, dot, dot? Am I a good father? Am I a good son? Am I a good spouse? Am I a good student? Am I a good employer? Am I a good whatever that might be? Because again, we try to work out, am I in this bucket or this bucket? In this example, I'm just going to use something that's very close to myself. Am I a good parent? That's a thing that comes in my head every now and then I'm in a situation, <laughs> am I really a good parent? Because the problem with that question is, you think back, okay, so all of my outstanding parenting moments in recent memory, when I think back at them, all the bad stuff <laughs> comes to surface a lot quicker than the good stuff, doesn't it? And so, okay, I think back at my par parent experiences, let's see. Oh, yeah, kind of forgot to pick the kids up from school the other day. They had a stick of butter for dinner. <laughs> yeah, probably not a good parent. <laughs> Perhaps, and perhaps, only perhaps, maybe a better question to ask is, where are my kids thriving in this situation? Because what that does is, again, it takes away the judgment and it looks at, um, and it looks at a positive, kind of frames things in a more positive way. We're looking, we're looking to see areas we can celebrate, but at the same time, it might be identifying areas that might require a bit more support. But again, it's taking away the judgment out of that and that's really important because we can look at ourselves through darkness or we can look at ourselves through light. And I know I am not helped by my own judgment. You know, I become self-loathing and I become embarrassed and I have those memories of things I've done that are stupid and I kick myself for them. But I am encouraged very much so by my own kindness. And so these are just some of the questions that we ask ourselves every day. And I just want to quickly talk about perhaps the way we answer some of these questions as well. You see, we live in the information world 
where literally the answer to almost any question is at our fingertips. You've got a question, you can just Google on your phone and find the answer to that question. And so that kind of instant response, that instant answer, that is what we're expecting of each other and often ourselves as well. If so, I know at work, if my boss asks me the question, he just wants an answer like that. The problem with that is, the first thing I blurt out usually isn't a great response. <laughs> if I go away, think about it and come back, usually I have a much better response or answer to give my boss or my wife <laughs> or whoever is asking me that question than if I just blurt something out. I reckon I could probably blurt five stupid things out in the time it takes me to come back with one good response. <laughs> and I've done that plenty of times before. And so perhaps in this um, technology age where the answers are expected to come instantly, perhaps in any given room, the wisest person is the one that might be seen as the slowest to respond. Maybe the person who's behind the pack. Maybe wisdom can't be something that's just thrown out there straight away. Now, of course, there's exceptions. If there's something that I'm experiencing or a road I've down, gone down a lot of times before or I'm familiar with it, then, yeah, I might be able to throw out the, a good response straight away. But more often than not, if I chew on something a bit longer, I'm going to come back with something a little bit wiser. And here's another thought. Maybe we don't need to always have the answers as well and just have that, those questions suspended. There's a great quote from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel. That's a mouthful. This, um, go, yep. And Carol actually shared this in a sermon last year, but it was so good I thought I'd share it with you again tonight because it fits really well here. And he says this, We are closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the answers. And that's so true, isn't it? Because when we are asking questions, we are open, we are searching, we are looking, we are willing to consider different points of view, we're happy to chew on it, we are willing to discuss, debate. We're so much more open when we are ask, asking questions. As soon as we know an answer to something, we close the door because we have found the truth and everything else must be a lie. And we are not listening and we are not open. But when it comes to relationship, questions, this openness, is a much better way to have these relationships. And the great thing about this quote is we can also flip it as well. And so we could say that perhaps God is close to us when he's asking questions rather than when he has all the answers. And that's a very Jewish way to approach this. You see, we often look at scripture and in a very academic way. This is the textbook. This is what it says. But the Jews love to play with scripture. They love to uh, discuss it, debate it. They love to move with the ebb and flow. And they, they call it dancing with the scripture. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And so maybe... God sometimes does suspend his omnipotent nature to be surprised and delighted with us. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, to give you an example from my own life, to put myself in God's shoes in this one, I uh, thought I'd give my girls a, um, a cultural experience and I watched the original three Star Wars movies with them <laughs> recently. <laughs> and I've probably seen them maybe a half a dozen times beforehand and so I knew them reasonably well and in the second movie got to that point where Darth Vader was about to tell Luke that he was his father. I knew this was coming, but my girls had absolutely no idea. And I had two ways to go about it. I could sit there and go, yeah, I've seen this half a dozen times. I know it's going to come, same old, same old. Or I could suspend that knowledge and just enjoy that moment of shock and perhaps disgust <laughs> with my kids as well and just live in that moment with them. And that's what I did. And it was a beautiful moment. And it's something that, yeah, we will remember the, when, you know, we all had our minds blown by... Good old Darth Vader, dad of the year. 
<laughs> so, put, moving this back to the original context of the Sermon of the Mount, what is Jesus actually saying here? Yes, healthy eyes allow us to live in the light, but blindness puts us into a world of darkness. And so, just like our eyes affect our whole body and how we live our lives, so do our ambitions and our perception affect our whole life. You see, focusing on Christ can lead us into the light, but being selfish, being intolerant, being inhuman, being resentful, being ruthless, it can plunge us into that world of spiritual darkness. And so when we're looking at these scriptures, slotted it right in there between the money as well. We, I think what Jesus is saying is, yes, he's doing a lot of comparisons here at the moment, but he's not just saying, God, good, money, bad. I think he wants us to be wiser than that. I think he wants us to be smarter than that and have better perceptions than that as well. And so rather than asking, why is money bad? Perhaps a better question that we could be asking is, as I serve God, how can my money serve me through that? And not just our money, it's our time, our experience, our compassion, our friendship, our love, our relationships. How can our lives better serve us as we serve God? Because as we walk in light, we, as we're in the Bible, we shine that light around us as well. But this needs to be a conscious perception that we are doing because it's easy, isn't it, just to resort back to those negative thoughts, those negative feelings that just seeing the world in, those, in that darkness and how great can that darkness be. So as you go out this week, I hope that you will challenge some of those questions that you are asking yourself. You'll stop yourself and say, is there a better question I can ask here? What is Jesus doing here? What is God doing in this situation that might seem so horrible? And how can we see this? through Jesus' eyes, how can we see this through God's eyes, and how can we live and walk in that lightness? Cool? Very cool. Alira. No, Luke. Wrap us up. Thanks, man. That was great, hey? Really good. Thanks, AJ. So good. Um, it just got, got me thinking as Oren was uh, speaking about a, a benediction, a blessing that I, I actually prayed over us in morning church last week, but I think it really just fits with... Um, yeah, what, what Oren was kind of helping us explore there, it's just this idea of reframing things and how we see the world. So I'm going to pray, just pray um, or speak this blessing over us as, as we finish. So it's a Franciscan uh, benediction, and it kind of just reframes how we think about um, our own discomfort or maybe our own anger uh, and some of those things that can be neg viewed negatively. But um, let these words just sit with you and maybe make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but um, may it be a challenge in light of what Oren's just shared with us for, for this week. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them, to turn their pain into joy. 
may God bless you with foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our world. Amen. Very good. Well, be blessed, guys. Let's uh, eat, enjoy curry and um, some time together up in the hall. And have a great week. See you next week. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.